0: not right.
1: Oh, it's plenty right. Hello, hello, hello everybody and welcome to episode number 12 of Gritty Reboot.
0: 12 episodes. Can you believe it?
1: I I know I can't. Amazing. Ah, so today we will be discussing a another film that I can say is a personal favorite of mine where we're going to be doing a pair of fright nights.
0: Yeah, we keep covering like some of my favorite movies. Well, I don't know if that's by accident <laughs> or what.
1: No, I think it's really the only way to do things, to be perfectly honest. I absolutely adore this movie, and I grew up with it. So I'm not really certain if it was uh, my grandfather or if it was my sister who was a big fan of this movie. But I remember as a kid, at one point, a drawer of a VHS recorded off of TV. Bunch of movies that my grandfather had done, obviously for my sister who lived with him. And one of the movies that was in there was this movie, Fright Night. And so I watched this movie until that VHS tape wore out. Yeah. That recording off of Showtime was completely demolished by the time I was done with it. So I, man, I watched this movie a ton as a kid. I really did. So I was very familiar with it and very excited. Uh, when they announced that a reboot was going to come, and I was ready to cramp all over it when it came out, and I ended up liking that movie, too. Yeah. So this is a time, uh, a good episode where we're going to talk about two movies that we both really dig.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So
1: this is a really fun episode, because I don't get to bash and shit on anything.
0: I just no. get to enjoy
1: uh, two really well-done films. When did you first see Fright Night?
0: Oh, sometime in high school.
1: Sometime in high school? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's well, The thing about Fright Night is, and the first thing you'll notice about it, especially... Even now with like streaming platforms, but the cover art, the poster is just eye catching Mm -hmm. with um, Amanda Bierce's character and that smile, that toothy grin above the house. Uh, It gives a great vibe. And it's one of those things, too. In the 80s, you would see a lot of well done little movie posters on a VHS cover and you'd get the movie back and you'd never get the moment that was on the poster or anything like that, you know? And what was super cool about Friday Night is it was the exact opposite. You totally got that image. You know, you you, you got that. And so the movie automatically rewarded any VHS hound who dared rent it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if any VHS hound who did rent it, um, they were obviously uh, very impressed because this is a movie for horror fans back before that was something that was really done. Yeah. What would you do if you accidentally discovered the house next door was occupied by something not human? Something horrifying. Something unspeakably evil. No one believes you. Mom, I didn't
0: have a nightmare.
1: Not your mom. They
0: did kill a girl over
1: there. Not your girlfriend.
0: Charlie, is this some sort of a trick to get me back?
1: Not even the police.
0: Look, I know so Night was
1: made I in that, uh, 1985.
0: The year of my birth.
1: Yeah, the year of your birth. And it was brought to us by uh, Tom Holland. Todd Holland, pardon me. And this was Todd Holland's uh, directorial debut, but he'd already been a pretty experienced writer. And this screenplay uh, garnered some attention throughout Hollywood. And I think they made this... Uh, I want to say the budget was, I think, what, $5 million, I think is what the initial total was uh, for the production.
0: Actually, it's nine point five million. Nine
1: point five. That's where yeah, I got the five. At they the very used
0: uh, about a million in special
1: effects. Yeah, no, you can tell this is not some cheap direct-to-video sort of movie like that. This is a a definite Hollywood horror film.
0: It's the first vampire movie to spend one million dollars on special effects at that time.
1: And that makes sense. Uh, you know, for the '80s, this is certainly a special effects feast. It really is.
0: And it's Tom Holland.
1: Oh, it's Tom Holland? It's Tom Holland. Tom Holland. I, I knew Holland, so I know I, <laughs> I knew the Holland part, I wasn't getting it wrong. So it's Tom Holland. Um, so and I, you know, I even listened to an episode of his podcast and I still screwed up his name. <laughs> I am destined to screw up people's names. It, it's just a curse, gentlemen. So I think one of the things I always loved about this movie is our lead character is a horror fan. You know, straight straight for, straight from the get go. You know? Yeah. Because this movie talks about a phenomena. That was very, very popular in the 70s and the 80s. And that's a sometimes local, but a lot of times national, like Elvira or Joe Bob, but a TV host basically who introduces a horror movie. Because any of our younger listeners out there, that's just how it worked back in the day. Mm -hmm. You would have a horror block of entertainment either on a local independent station or a lower end cable channel because cable was a little bit different in the mid 80s. And they would take some cheap, um, either hammer horror or old universal films, or even movies from the seventies that were slashers that just weren't very successful. And they would have a host basically introduce them and talk about them and do some fun things. And that was all over the place in the eighties. And that is where we are introduced to the Peter Vincent character. And that archetype is from something that just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And it's something I always like. I grew up a big fan of Elvira and Joe Bob as a kid. So I really uh, absolutely love that. I See, do. I
0: never watched a bit of it.
1: Oh, really? You never I've saw never any of Elvira? I've never seen any
0: of Elvira. I've never seen any of Joe Bob stuff.
1: Oh, man. I know
0: Vincent Price did a little of it in his day.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing about it was, like, uh, Joe Bob, he was uh, another national host. He was on TNT. He did their Monster Vision program, and that was a little bit after Elvira. And he had a completely different thing. Obviously, he didn't have giant breasts hanging out of a dress to help yeah. prevent to help to present a movie. But, you know, he did, like, you know, Gun Fu, Machete Fu. You know, he had a lot of fun things he introduced and made horror movies a really fun experience. I remember the first time I watched Monster Vision. And I was like, oh, he, he likes the kills too, or he likes to talk about which ones are the best ones. I thought that was such a unique thing, unique thing as a kid. You know, this is before I ever found Fangoria or anything like that. So I, I just always enjoyed that element. So I think one of the things that I love about Fright Night is this is probably the only movie I can think of where a character goes against what his dick is telling him to do and gets him in major trouble. Yeah. This, is, this might be the only maybe movie in existence where a character characters not blindly follow his dick and it doesn't work out positively.
0: Yeah, it's actually like a little storyline in, in the movie.
1: Yeah, yeah. H- had he just followed, had he just b- listened to his penis and followed into his girlfriend, he would have completely forgot about Jerry and probably would have been A-OK and never would have stumbled onto any of the shenanigans that are in this movie. In that case, he is the world's worst horny teenager, but best horror sleuth. I'll give him that. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's no way I'd make that decision if I was 17 or 18 in high school. Not at all.
0: So we got a great cast. Chris Sarandon plays Jerry, the vampire. Mm -hmm. Uh, Roddy McDowell plays Peter Vincent. Mm -hmm. Uh, William Ragsdale is Charlie. Herman's head. Amanda Bierce, which you mentioned before, is Amy. Married with children. And Stephen Jeffries is Ed, the friend.
1: I don't have a credit for Stephen Jeffries, but he does a great job as evil Ed. So... I know as a kid, I had seen Married to Children before I'd ever seen this movie. So I was surprised to see Amanda Bierce play a, I guess, like a cute role. I wouldn't say sexy. Well, I guess she's sexy kind of before she turns. But you've never really seen Married to Children at all, have you? No. A classic sitcom from the 90s and gave us Al Bundy. And um, she played a character who was like an annoying feminist. And so she was never, ever supposed to be viewed as sexy ever. So I was kind of surprised when I saw this and got to see a different side of her. Now I know she's cute and anything like that, but because I'm married with children, I could never ever find her attractive in any way, shape, or form.
0: She's supposed to be the girl next door. That's what yeah, the yeah. Tom Holland was going for when yeah. he
1: Are you sure it's not Todd Holland? Yeah. Are you sure? It's Tom Holland. Okay, it's Tom Holland. Okay, she's so <laughs> hoping I've right. So yeah, and then she does have that girl next door appeal and everything she like does. that. She absolutely does. And I, I love that look from her, honestly. It's it's really refreshing. Matter of fact, the, the way this movie captures the 80s is really impressive. Because it captures an incredibly realistic side of the 80s. You know, like you watch Stranger Things today and like, yes, there was fashion like that. But that's not what the 80s was really like. Mm-hmm. You know, I love the way uh, Brewster's house is, the way his mother is. Because I feel like that was like every suburban white house in, in the 80s. It, I mean, it just has that feel dripping with it. I absolutely love it. Like, the, the design work in the movie is, is really good in that respect. Realism meets the gothic horror of Jerry's house. And it, it, it creates such a stark contrast that I absolutely love it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Speaking of Ed, the friend, how did you feel about him as a friend character? I mean, he's kind of like <laughs> the ball headed stepchild.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's the third wheel. But he doesn't appear to have like a problem being the third wheel. Um, which is interesting, I think. He is an, a unique character. And listen, I think he has that immortal line, oh, you're so cool, Brewster, while he has the spaghetti and meat sauce like dripping from his face. Yeah. We've all had a friend like that. A guy that we've known who any opportunity will just Openly laugh and mock us to our face, and and that's kind of who evil Ed is. He, he's just they
0: have an odd relationship.
1: They do, they do. But yeah, I can think of guys like that who I who I was kind of friends with in college or in high school. So it's not really that out of the ordinary, to to be honest. It, you know, I think the the way he's portrayed is pretty realistic. You know, he doesn't believe us, nor should he. He should not believe his friend the Jerry's a vampire. That's ridiculous and absurd. <laughs> so he does a great job with that, and he's always sort of very consistent. He'll humor his friend like when he wants advice about, you know, how to kill vampires. But, you know, he's always there to smack him back down like I think any other dude would in that situation. That's just yeah. how guys are. You know, we like to bust each other's balls. And he's he's busting Brewster's balls, I mean, throughout really the entire runtime of the movie. Even, you know, I feel bad he doesn't get more opportunities to talk to Charlie after he's turned. Because I think he would continue to do it then. But you know, it's just how guys are. Like, they bust each other's balls. I, I dig the character. I love the way he's played. Uh, it's a really good performance to make. I think what, what might be a one-note character just kind of stand out. Like, the way he just says every line, his, like, high-pitched laugh, it, it made him memorable.
0: He um, actually really wanted the the part of Charlie when he first—he uh, re- he tried out for the part of Charlie. Oh, really? And was very upset when they—the the casting director was basically like, We don't want you for Charlie— we want you as Evil Ed. <laughs> so he went with it.
1: Yeah, I know. He does a fantastic job. He really does. Um, he, he's in this one. Oh, I should have said 976 Evil. He's in that. Oh, OK. Yeah, 976 Evil. <laughs> I know a movie you haven't seen, but I've seen it before. Robert Englund's in it, or did he direct it?
0: Is it like a B movie?
1: No, uh, well, yes, but not much of a B movie. Like a higher quality B movie. Oh, OK. Robert Englund's involved in some way, shape, or form. I haven't seen it in a very, very, very long time.
0: So, uh, this movie is kind of set in the suburbs.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Why would a vampire move to the suburbs?
1: He probably got a great deal on the property. (laughs) I mean, that's got to be it. Well,
0: Why wouldn't a vampire stay in the city?
1: Well, I I think, first off, you would need a place to have like a lair. And his mythos appear to stick pretty close to the original kind of Dracula mythos. And fun fact about the Dracula mythos: you go back and read the book, Dracula doesn't really have an aversion to sunlight. He doesn't care for it, but doesn't kill him. Uh, that wouldn't come along until uh, F.W. Murnau put it into Nosferatu in, in the 1920s. But Dracula did have to sleep in the earthly ground of Transylvania. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a big deal. Like, we see that Jerry sleeps in the basement. Yeah. And I think that's a difficult thing to emulate in an apartment, is try to get the dirt floor for you to sleep in. Well, I think that makes a lot more sense to him, in all honesty. And, you know, just to mention, you know, I sh- I, I didn't take a look at what housing prices were like in the 80s. I'm pretty sure they were fantastic. Yeah, I can
0: get like a, a our house. For well, like
1: I mean, g- take a look. I mean, Je- Jerry's got a ton of pro- property, really. I mean, he's got like a double story house. He's doing great. I mean, he really is. That's a nice property that Jerry has there.
0: Basically, uh, Jerry gets his he gets his, the police called on him. Mm-hmm. Their first interaction between Charlie and. And Jerry.
1: Yeah.
0: um, I think he demonstrates some real balls trying to get the police involved.
1: Yeah. Well, you, you take a look at it. And you remember in the 80s, like there's no Internet, so he can't really Google like, hey, what's my best option here or anything like that or talk to anybody. His friends don't really seem to care. He's alienated his girlfriend a little bit at that point. So his only real option is to call the police. And he truly believes like there was a murder. So he has every right to call the police. And you can see inside of Charlie's head, he is not trying to tell the police officer that he thinks Jerry is a vampire. He didn't lead with that because he's not an idiot. Yeah. Now, once again, it comes out in the middle of it. Because the one thing that I love is the second the vampire talk comes out, and you can tell this is not the first time that Jerry and his manservant, Billy, uh, Billy, right? Yeah. They've dealt with this issue. Because the second it comes out, Billy immediately... Starts laughing hysterically and like, like slapping the cop on the chest. Like, can you believe this? Yeah. I mean, this is a shtick they have done before. And I mean, they completely make a laughing stock out of Charlie and get him thrown out of there. It is one of those things that you're going to have to do if you're going to survive as a vampire in the modern day. Right.
0: Absolutely. You have
1: to get very good at your camouflage.
0: Yeah. And Jerry gets a little bold by going over to his house to attack him. With his mom sleeping in the other room. Yeah. Do you think he's being too bold or just uh, matching Charlie's intensity?
1: Well, I think his initial goal is to just scare Charlie in line. Because even as a vampire, you don't want to kill your next door neighbor. <laughs> yeah, because that, that's a, like if you're talking about how to avoid the police, like that's a really bad idea to shit where you eat. Like for him to go and like massacre his next door neighbor, the cops are pretty much going to look, you know, both directions and go like, "Let's see, do we want the sixty year old guy who's been living next to them for twenty years, or the guy in the gothic mansion who dresses like Dracula?" Mm. It is a move that is just pure theatricality because I think that's—I don't think he wants to kill Brewster even in that moment. I don't think he wants to kill Brewster till he pisses him off by stabbing his hand. Yeah, I think that's the main moment that he. Makes that decision like, all right, I'm going to fuck with this kid until I take everything he has and then murder him. That's the moment that there's a shift in, in, in the movie. So at least in my opinion, I think that's where it definitely turns.
0: What do you think about uh, uh, Jerry's makeup?
1: Well, this is something I really want to talk about. And, you know, I, I mentioned this a lot about characters being uh, queer coded. And Jerry would be a little bit different. He'd be bisexually coded. I feel like there's another gay joke in there that I'm going to avoid. <laughs> because obviously we see Jerry with women, you know, there's the scene
0: with where, a model.
1: Yeah. Charlie's looking on from his bedroom and, you know, she takes off her shirt and, you know, you see her topless and he slowly makes his way around her before he turns the light off and starts to, to murder her. Or at least that's what Charlie he assumes. Cause we don't see that guy because he pulls that. that down. So we don't get to see that. But what do we see on Jerry? What's he have long feminine-like fingernail, a delicate features on his face that are perfectly manicured and almost a more feminine-like look with a little bit of makeup. Am I right?
0: Yeah, he does look like he's wearing a little makeup.
1: Yeah. uh, And more so than just movie makeup. He looks like he actually is wearing some makeup. He lives with a man and their relationship is never, ever explained. Mm -mm. Not at any point in the movie at all.
0: I'm assuming that Billy is like a Renfield type character.
1: But yeah, and I've always assumed that too, but you know, watching back and again, we never know, you know, he's he's able to step out during the daylight. And also, I think one of the other things that I've I've always took as an element of the queer coding of the movie is that when Billy is killed, he doesn't explode, he doesn't fall down and die or anything like that. I've actually had this theory uh, passed on to me, so this one isn't my own, about the way Billy completely disintegrates. Like he becomes, you know, a shell of a man. Everything is sort of drained out of the life force brought out from within, right?
0: Yeah, he's and, in nothing character.
1: Yeah, I've almost had it compared to like what AIDS does to you, slowly, you know, tearing your body apart from the inside, you know, and 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 you know, almost aging you before your time, and and like that's sort of a parallel in the way Billy's death is sort of portrayed. Another element of, of the queer coding um, of of Jerry's character. I think the one other element that I, I really want to make a case for in that uh, is that I think in this movie, the Jerry character is attempting to steal sort of the heterosexuality away from Charlie, because like, he's going after his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. You know, he's going after his girlfriend. He's a younger man going after her. But you and I both know it's not about the girl. I mean, there's this weird little subplot that's in there where she looks like somebody from his past.
0: Yeah. That's why he's drawn to her.
1: That's why he is drawn to her. But I think he ultimately is playing it out. Because he is playing a game with Charlie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, I think the, the, the last scene to hammer this home about how Jerry's a bit of a queer coded vampire is his courting of Evil Ed. You know, because he doesn't... Okay, let me just say, I love when a movie can surprise me. Because we've seen vampires kill people hundreds of ways. Even by 1985, we've seen it hundreds of different ways, right? Yeah. And so he doesn't swoop in as a bat or he doesn't go for his neck. He sticks a hand out of acceptance and he offers this new life to ed he doesn't just take him or slash his throat open he offers him this way of acceptance
0: he relates to him
1: yeah yeah and to me that's like asking ed to step out of the closet that's the way i've always read it and as i've gotten older as i watched it again i was like yeah this movie totally queer coded in a certain way and i, I think that's fantastic it, it really is it's another element to a movie and listen You can't break down movies to look for subtext like this if they're shit. You just can't. Mm -hmm. They're not there. I I can't break down Friday the 13th Part 5 that way because there's nothing there to break down. Holland, Tom or Todd, whatever his name is, (laughs) is a very gifted filmmaker to be able to give us all these elements to chew on. I mean, I'm still chewing on this movie, you know, 30 plus years after its release.
0: Hey, it's his directorial debut, so...
1: Yeah, and he's a fantastic writer. The script's got a lot of nice surprises in it. I mean, obviously, I just talked about, you know, me sort of analyzing the movie from sort of a queer perspective. And, you know, you don't even have to see that in the movie to enjoy it. These are just things that I've gotten from repeated viewings and talking to friends about it, because this is a movie that cries for you to talk about. Because it's far more interesting than I think any other vampire film from the 80s, even great classics like The Lost Boys. I find this film far more engaging and interesting than that movie. Mm -hmm. And I love Joel Schumacher's Lost Boys.
0: You know, uh, Chris Sarandon um, did part of his own makeup in the movie.
1: That makes sense.
0: Yeah, he um, he he, at times somebody would be doing his makeup on his face and Mm -hmm. he would be doing the makeup on his nails.
1: Yeah, yeah. See, I love the way his nails are portrayed. They they really are because you see them a lot. You know, whether he slashes through people, gives them an animalistic quality. And, and like I said, um, you know, gives him a lot of things that we associate with the bad guy that that is queer coding, because that's a lot of what queer coding is. We th- It's been thrown on the bad guy uh, in Hollywood for years. Mm-hmm. And, and th- those are just cliches of the genre at this point.
0: It was also Chris Saran- Sarandon's idea to uh, have Jerry eating apples throughout the movie. So I don't know if you noticed that, like. Jerry is constantly eating apples. There's that whole shot of him eating, taking a big old chunk mm-hmm. and rolling it towards Charlie as Charlie's spying on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he, he, so he's eating apples throughout the entire movie. Um, Sar- Sarandon looked up info about bats and concluded that Jerry would eat a lot of fruit and had some fruit bat DNA.
1: Yeah, see, these are the things that you get when you bring in a higher quality actor. Because yeah. I, I want to mention this. I, I don't know you know, how many facts you have about Chris Sarandon here, but I know that he didn't want to do the movie initially because he didn't want to really be associated with a horror movie. Because horror was a pretty low art form back in the early 80s. You had Halloween as an example of something great, but you were getting a ton of schlock. Your prom nights, nice, your Friday the 13th, um, even the sequels of the franchise we just talked about, like Halloween. You know, a lot of those movies weren't good, so Sarandon, you know, wasn't so <laughs> into the idea because he's a real actor. You know, he, I believe he'd gotten um, an Oscar nomination for Dog Day Afternoon early in his career. So, I mean, you're not talking about some slouch. Yeah. You know, this, this, you know, this movie is incredibly lucky to have him because Jerry is one of my favorite vampires in all of fiction. You know, I, I love every element that Sarandon's able to bring to the character because he really thought about it and you see it on screen. You know it's a better performance than what we're normally getting from somebody just playing a vampire in a movie. He thought these elements out to his character, and they work. You know, even if some of these things aren't mentioned loudly or anything like that or drawn attention to, like the fruit bat, there's just something there that you wouldn't normally find in any other movie. It makes Sarandon's performance really noteworthy, and why people still talk about it today.
0: Yeah, he gives a lot of dimension to the character.
1: Yeah, yeah, he very much does.
0: For the final makeup. The one that you see at the end, mm-hmm. um, that was eight hours of makeup total. And to deal with the, the makeup that he had to wear in this movie, he used hypnosis and meditation.
1: Yeah, yeah. This is one thing people don't really talk about a lot. The but
0: psychological.
1: It's very difficult to yeah. have to sit in a chair and just have a heavy appliance of latex put on your face. Yeah. And you just have to live with it and not be able to move your face like you normally can. Uh, I know Jim Carrey talked to um, a drill instructor who uh, gave him some advice on how to deal with torture when he played the Grinch. You know, it's very difficult to do this. It, it really is. That makeup can really wear on an actor, especially when, it, you know, it's eating up eight hours of your day. I mean, yeah. can you imagine before you go to work, you have to sit in a for eight hours and then you're going to start your 12-hour day. day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it, it's an incredible thing to, if you really think about what all an actor like that. Has to go through and to get through. It, it, it is very, very impressive.
0: So we have this interesting character um, in Peter Vincent. Played by uh, Roddy McDowell. Mm-hmm. Do you think the movie needs a Peter Vincent character? He's kind of comic relief. Does the movie need a comic relief?
1: This movie does. I, I think that's one of the elements of... of I This is more of a, of a post-modern vampire tale. Because Peter Vincent is sort of there to poke fun at and almost kind of shit on what's come before and and where horror is that moment. Cause he has a line in there that I, I believe he takes a moment to talk about how dumb horror movies are today and just killing teenagers with a, you know, a psycho killer. And then that's not real horror. Of course, that's what somebody older would always think. I love the elements that his character really brings in because he's able to talk about the element of where horror has been to where it's going now and obviously his name you know Peter Vincent is a a mashup of, of Vincent Price and and Peter Cushing mm-hmm. two incredibly famous Hammer Horror icons and and
0: Yeah, you might want to explain what Hammer Horror is cuz so, I don't so, know if our audience knows. Yeah, that. so uh,
1: Hammer Horror was basically a a British uh, production company and they were remaking a lot of the classic horror movies in color. And they were the gritty reboots of the day of um, the late 1950s. Because I think Horror of Dracula, that's what we know it here in the States, differentiated, but it's just Dracula everywhere else, with uh, Christopher Lee as Dracula, the iconic performance. That was 1958. And horror, Hammer would uh, last for about 10 years, uh, remaking a number of old horror classics like that. When you watch this movie, if it isn't a fake movie with uh, Rodney McDowell in, in makeup trying to make him look younger, they are actually old hammer horror films. And that's exactly what he's sending up that over the top nature of them. And, and like I said, if you've ever watched Star Wars and wondered, you know, why Grandma Tarkin is Peter Cushing played by that actor, that's why. You know, it comes from those horror movies that George Lucas also grew up loving. You know, that's why he's there, and, you know.
0: So there's no hammers involved.
1: There is no hammers involved. <laughs> well, you mean you hammer a stake in? Um, I, I mean, I like some of, I, I do like some of the hammer horrors, but it's not something I'm incredibly familiar with before my time. But I did see them when I was a kid, but I haven't sat down to watch a horror movie, a hammer horror movie, pardon me, in many, many years.
0: There's a shot in the movie where Jerry drinks holy water. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that go against everything a vampire is? How in the hell does he drink holy water?
1: (laughs) Well, I love this this whole sequence is, you know, we were just talking about Peter Vincent and and Peter Vincent is the kind of protagonist that we really like in a horror movie because he has to step up and there isn't a single heroic bone in that man's body. There's a scene that happens just before that. The kids are convincing him to go out there and he's like, I won't entertain such drivel. I won't do it. I'll pay you how much you got. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he immediately changes his tune and he calls Jerry to set all this up to make sure it all goes well. So this whole thing, you know, this whole thing is, um, you know, is a shoot. Uh, so they're doing this segment where he tells him, OK, I'll do this. Oh, you're born again, Christian. I won't bring a cross or anything. The holy water will be fake. And he's putting the theatricality on. And there's even a great line in there where Jerry kind of mocks him openly to his face. I saw your previous films. I found them amusing. Peter Vincent's so happy to have anybody know that they watched his movie. Especially Jerry, who's the coolest motherfucker in the room. Yeah. So he's thrilled by it. And it's a really nice scene. You have Charlie completely defeated by the fact that he's passed this test. And Peter Vincent brings up his little compact for some reason. And in the mirror, he finally gets confirmation that Jerry is a vampire by breaking the most Classic rules, yeah. they do not cast a reflection.
0: Yeah. Why do you think Peter Vinson is written as such a coward?
1: Well, I, I think it, it makes for a far more interesting turn. And I think there isn't necessarily a line where he's like, I'm a coward, you know, or anything like that. A lot of it comes from the way Roddy McDowell wanted to play him. I do know that, um, and I've, I've heard uh, Holland talk about this a lot. Obviously, the role was was written for Vincent Price mm-hmm. and he had uh, approached Vincent Price, but Price was not he's good. He's too do- old. Well, P- Price was too old. And also, Vincent Price just didn't want to do a horror movie. You know, yeah, he was just, like, just Listen, done I- with it. Yeah, he's like, I can't do any more horror movies. I'm typecast. I don't want to do them. And I think Vincent Price actually really liked the script. So they went to Roddy McDowell, who refused to do a Vincent Price impression and and really just went with this cheesy actor who wasn't very good. And didn't have sort of an honest or heroic bone in his body. And his performance is really one of the more iconic protagonists in all of horror. I think there's a movie that tries to do this and not as well, directed by Bruce Campbell. I am Bruce, Mm. where Bruce Campbell plays Bruce Campbell. And he's uh, brought to a town where he has to try to take out uh, a real demon, a real demon, basically. And the whole movie is sort of the idea of, like, the Peter Vincent character of Fright Night. And that movie doesn't work as well, uh, even though Bruce Campbell's a talented actor, but it's just not um, as sharp an idea as this one is. You know, like Peter Cushing's character actually having to kill a vampire is, I think, very interesting. Um, this movie is full of a lot of interesting, intriguing ideas. And, and that's really one of them. I, I just, I, you know, the way he's a coward and him having to overcome it, you know, it, it means something when he shows up to help Charlie. It really does, like you know, like he's like, okay, I'm probably not going to make it out of this, but I, I'm I'm not going to let this go. You know, he grew a backbone and he went to help out a, a friend that he had just made. It it makes for a nice relationship that is carried into a sequel, which I had the displeasure of seeing late last night for the first time. Oh boy, um, it it's fine if you like Fright Night. It's more of that, except not as high quality. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's you know, it is what it is. It, it's a sequel and it's not as good.
0: Towards the end of the movie, you have Charlie and um, Amy in a nightclub. They're trying to basically get away from Jerry. Mm-hmm. And um, Jerry, you know, he comes up behind uh, Charlie as he's on the phone, and he takes Amy. Yeah. And at at some point, um, Charlie sees this, and he has to be thinking to himself, that he's lost. I yeah. mean, it's fruitless at yeah, this point.
1: It's over, yeah.
0: So why does he continue?
1: Well, you know, we just talked about Peter Vincent not having a heroic bone in his body. That's not the upbringing yeah. that Charlie's had. No, Charlie, he's, a, he's got balls. Charlie's grown up on those movies. So there's only one option those movies have left for him. And that's Kill the Goddamn Vampire. <laughs> I mean, that, right? What else is he going to do? Yeah. He, he can't go anywhere else. He can't go to the cops. He can't just hide at home with mom. He's already, Jerry's invited to the house. He's going to go there and slaughter his mother one day. You know, there's only one option left when you've reached this point in the story, and that is you go and you kill the goddamn vampire. It doesn't matter that Jerry has superhuman strength and that he's a vampire and can do pretty much anything and has minions to help him fight. He's got guts. He's got balls, Yeah. and he's he's going to use them. That's it. You know, he simple as that. Yeah, he's he's he's, he's brave. That's it. You know, and he, once again, him and Peter are a fantastic combination of horror protagonists.
0: Do you know Charlie is said sixty-two times in this movie?
1: I wouldn't be surprised. Everyone says his name. Amy a ton. says
0: his name like a yeah. million times,
1: except for evil. Except for Ed, who calls him Brewster. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Charlie Sheen auditioned for the role of Charlie. But Tom Holland didn't feel like he, he was right for the part. He didn't have the right look.
1: I'm, I'm not surprised. Charlie Sheen's just too cool to pull this kind of thing. Especially Charlie Sheen, if you're thinking like, like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Like Charlie Sheen's like the coolest motherfucker in the room. You can't have him in this movie. You need someone who's a little bit more of a nerd. You need the man who's the future lead of Herman's Head.
0: Well, you, you got the girl next door. Yeah. So it would be right to have a kind of a boy next door type feel. Yeah,
1: Yeah, and that's the kind of feel that Charlie has in this movie. Like, he's not an action hero, a superhero, or anything like that. And Charlie Sheen definitely leads a little bit more to being too suave. Jerry should be the suavest guy in the movie. He is, don't worry. But no one should ever compete with him.
0: While looking up the facts for this movie, I thought it was uh, interesting that the movie pays tribute to Salem's Lot.
1: Oh, really? Where's that?
0: Oh, all throughout the movie. Okay. There's a list of things that you can look up, but yeah, it's all throughout the movie there's uh, tributes to Salem's Lot.
1: I should probably see Salem's Lot, then.
0: Right I hadn't seen it in a yeah, while, either, so I, I couldn't I, tell yeah, you. Yeah,
1: I think I saw it my mom when I was a kid on Sci Fi Channel, like in like when I was eight or nine. So that's all my memory of Salem's Lot, which isn't a lot. I know there was a, a reboot with um Rob Lowe, but I never saw that either.
0: And then this movie was the second highest grossing horror movie in 1985. Yeah, very successful film Nightmare on Elm Street 2, yeah. Freddy's Revenge.
1: Yeah, very, very successful film. I think it was the 35th. Uh, highest grossing movie in America that year, and that's fantastic for a horror picture. Um, that's fantastic for a horror picture now, certainly uh, then, because the movie had expectations, but not like it did. The movie did really great numbers, which is really strange because the the sequel was buried yeah. uh, when it came out. They just it barely got a theatrical release, and that's why most people don't even realize it was a Fright Night too.
0: So now that um, we've talked about mostly everything, let's get to the finale of this movie. Okay. How do you feel about the whole end sequence?
1: Honestly, I I love it. I I really do from the incredible practical effects from Amanda versus character changing Mm -hmm. and becoming that creature that we see on the poster, that effect with her smile and the long teeth is just great. And the way it's played, how terrified he is. Um, The other kill that I really want to talk about in the movie is when Peter Vincent takes on evil ed. That scene First of all, you get uh, a real dog in there, uh, which is great. Him coming at Peter Vincent. That's a good shot. And then he's able to put a stake into his heart and put him down. And you have a really great reverse transformation. And the scene almost where you, you pity him as he's reaching out for Peter, almost begging for help as he's slowly
0: transforming yeah.
1: back into a human. The curse is breaking. The curse is broken. Th- this movie uh, does that a little bit when people are, are when vampires are killed. Uh, the remake would follow up on this idea quite a bit, but I-, I like that idea that, like, he's reaching for him to any kind of mercy or whatever mm-hmm. before he dies and is turned back to a person. It is a great effect sequence, but there's heart behind it. Because even though, like I said, Ed is evil now, like, we knew him for the solid the course of this movie. Quite a bit of a jerk, but he wasn't a bad guy. He didn't deserve that. Not at all.
0: Yeah, um... I c- I couldn't say anything else, but ditto. I mean, everything at the end sequence was pretty awesome. I yeah. loved all the makeup effects. Um, it was a hard fought fight.
1: Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Cause Jerry fight. doesn't Jerry doesn't go down. Jerry makes a couple mistakes, but he doesn't go down easy.
0: But you can tell he's surprised by Charlie.
1: Yeah, well, I think he's surprised by Peter Vincent, especially the one moment when he has the faith in the cross again. Yeah, you know, because he knows that Charlie believes in it, and so he's cautious. But when Peter Vincent's able to really um subdue him with that, that surprises him and puts him in a real bad place. And he forgets the time. You know, the one thing a vampire can't do is forget when the sun comes up. And that's what the battle costs him, you know. And then Jerry was in complete control. And I think, you know, he underestimated these two guys. And when the sun comes up, it's like, oh, shit, I fucked up. I've got to get out of here. You know, when he heads downstairs, um, you know, we have the great sequence of, uh, by the way, I love the bat that he turns into when you get to see it. Mm-hmm. Like Peter Vincent putting the stake in his mouth and trying to wrestle with him. And by the way, I I don't know if you have a fact for me. Do you have a fact for me on that Bat character?
0: No, not really.
1: I have a fact for you, though. Oh, wow. Mix it up. So this makeup team, they came from Ghostbusters. It's what they did just before this movie. You talk about one iconic film to the next. That design was originally supposed to be the library ghost.
0: Oh. Yeah, and
1: Ivan Reitman said, like, are you kidding me? We can't put that scary-ass shit in this movie. So he ended up scrapping the design And just brought it back out again when he read the Fright Night script and said, oh, I already have a bat-like creature ready to go. Cool. And so they just reused it there. As you can see, it's pretty scary. So I can understand why. Reitman was like, that's a little more than we're looking for. Yeah, that's a a little bit too much. But yeah, the the whole sequence of smashing out the windows and having the sunlight come in to finish off a vampire. I mean, it's a classic way to do it, but I I really like how, how it's done. I really do. The way it's played, the sound effects. Chris Sarandon screaming during it. it. It's all so well done. I mean, this is, you know, not not just as a horror comedy, is this movie good, but as a legitimate like vampire movie, it's good. It reminds me of Hot Fuzz in that way, because it kind of poking fun at a horror movie or like a, a certain kind of movie and then becomes an excellent version of that movie.
0: Well, we could probably go on four hours talking about how much we we, we love this movie this
1: is probably the longest we've gone covering (laughs) one single film we're almost at 40 minutes
0: so let's get into fright night 2011
1: okay hey mom hey just checking in you up to uh
0: adam johnson adam you know adam's missing right all right, kids aren't coming to school. It happens all the time. I don't know if you're paying attention to Roll Call, but he's not the only one that's gone. You're nuts.
1: This is my son, Charlie, and his girlfriend. Hi. So Jerry is our new neighbor. Hey. Hey.
0: Now listen to me. We've up all the disappearances. That's you right there in the center next to his house. I really hate to be the one to tell you this, but that guy, your neighbor? Jerry. Yeah, he's a vampire. <laughs> That is a terrible vampire name. Jimmy Cass, Colin Farrell as Jerry, Anton Yelkin as Charlie, Kristen Mintz-Plasse as Ed's friend, or Evil Ed, David Tennant, oh God, I love David Tennant, uh, as Peter Vincent, Imogene Poots as Amy, the girlfriend. So
1: Can we talk about Imogene Poots for a second? I mean, what an unfortunate name for any actor to have. Oh, I know. I just, like, I, 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 I first saw her in uh, 28 Weeks Later. And when I saw her name, I never, ever forgot it.
0: She's a strikingly beautiful woman.
1: Yeah, she really is. She really is. This is her first team-up with Anton Yelkin. They would do it again in um, Green Room. Yeah, the
0: year. Green Room.
1: Yeah, another fantastic horror movie you guys should check out. Well, not really a horror movie, more of a thriller, but still, you guys should check it's it out. It's got some
0: horror aspects.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So last week, we had a movie that was the exact same as our original film. They use the same script and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, this yeah. movie is what more what we were looking for is the same kind of story a lot of those elements but there's a lot of surprises if you've seen the original film this movie was written by marty Knoxon, and she was a long time uh buffy writer so she was incredibly capable and skilled uh, when it came to writing uh, vampire characters and she loved the original film and i think you can easily yeah, see that um,
0: in, this movie. in early stages of development heath ledger was actually considered for jerry
1: that's not a bad pick. I mean, which is odd. Yeah, after the after the tour de force performance you get from Sarandon, I, I think you were looking for a big time actor, somebody with a lot of skill to come in and play the Jerry part. You know, to sort of try to stack up to that because you just you need that kind of um, you need that kind of skill to be able to play this character. You don't want to have a big step down in actors because then you're going to look be looked at as a much lesser remake. And getting Colin Farrell was a big boon to the production.
0: So one of the biggest changes I saw uh, immediately was Peter Vincent is cast as an illusionist.
1: Yes, yes. So I, I think, now no, don't get me wrong, I, I, straight up right now, I do prefer the original film. But I really love this remake.
0: Yeah, it's a good remake. Because
1: it is, you have to update elements if you're going to put it in the modern day. There's sometimes you watch a movie and there'll be some elements they don't bother to update from the original property. And it's like, well, that made sense in 1982. But it doesn't make sense today. Mm-hmm. And if you had Peter Vincent as a guy who introduced horror movies and was an actor in horror movies from the 80s, that wouldn't work because he didn't make vampire movies in the 80s. Nobody watches a host anymore to watch movies on cable. Uh, we don't need a horror host for yeah. that. That does. There is no. There is no, no equivalent in parallel in 2011 for the Peter Vincent character. So making him a bit more of a Chris Angel type yeah is I think a pretty good move. Is it perfect? No, but honestly, the more I've thought about it, like I can't think of a better way to update it. And, and you know, we'll talk about that when we're done talking about this movie about ways to update the Peter Vincent character that are piss poor. I this character isn't as interesting as the original version of the character. But that doesn't matter because he's played by David Tennant. Yeah, and gosh. David Tennant's having a lot of fun. He understands the kind of movie this is and brings the kind of performance that truly is necessary to make this version of the character leap off the screen to be someone you kind of root for. Because I don't, I, you know, he is a coward as well, but I don't think he's as likable a coward as Roddy McDowell's version is yeah. in that movie. So I, I, I do like what, what he brings to it. And I, I like their attempt to update it.
0: The other um, instance of change that I I noticed was um, Ed Evil Ed is mm-hmm. is the one that's ultimately suspicious of Jerry, not Charlie.
1: Yeah, yeah. So why
0: why do you think they did that?
1: Well, I think you you definitely want to try to mix some things up from the original movie. You don't want to stick to those elements. And in this movie, the are the Charlie characters a little bit different. He's moving on from those elements of his childhood, from those horror movies that he liked. That he enjoyed watching with Ed. He's moving on from that childish thing because he has a hot new girlfriend.
0: He has so much disdain for char- uh, for Ed, though.
1: Almost pure hatred to remind him of what he was. The yeah. loser virgin that he used to be. Jeez. You know, and he... he I thought he, it was harsh. Yeah, I like that. He looks at him with such disdain. And, like, the last thing he says to him is him being a complete fucking dick to his friend for no reason. And that's what propels this situation forward. You know, because once Ed is, is done for, and, and Ed is a far more sympathetic character, you know, because there's another murder before this, the movie opens up with a murder. Mm-hmm. One of their friends is gone and Ed's like, hey, our friend has disappeared. He's not, he was a local. He doesn't just disappear. Something happened and you don't give a shit. What's the matter with you? Like, he's mad at his friend for that. And, you know, Charlie doesn't handle it well and it leads to their rift is what gets Ed killed. And because of that, he's a much more sympathetic figure. Yeah. And the moment later on where he has the fight with Charlie, and Charlie's able to finish him off. And they have a great CG effect where like, the flames burn through him. And at the last second, the curse burns out. And the makeup is gone. And you see McLeven's normal face. And I know I shouldn't call him McLevin. But you see his normal face, and there's this look of just relief.
0: Well, he says it's okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's really well done. And you almost want to like, you want to hug both characters, you know, the one who's just about to expire, Ed, and, and Charlie for having to do what he had to do to make up for a mistake.
0: How do you feel about Colin Farrell cast as Jerry?
1: Great. Uh, Colin Farrell, top five underrated actor of the last like 20 years. For some reason, let, that's a guy who should fire his agent.
0: Because, yeah, yeah he should. Yeah, because he is good.
1: Yeah, he really is. He's a fantastic actor. He's
0: a cool motherfucker.
1: Yeah, and then seeing him in things like like the Total Recall reboot is really unfortunate. Now this reboot worked out well for, him, or at least critically worked out well for him. You know, he, he he has some struggles, and and this character of Jerry is different. There is no Billy character. Um, this character is hetero all the way, and really he plays him, and I think Ed mentions this too early on, like a shark. Like he is this constant predator, ready to destroy and kill any human in his way just for the sake of it. Like humans are just toys for him to play with. And Colin Farrell portrays that perfectly. And, and I really like that how aggressive he is. You know, there's um movies need to surprise you, you know, because in the original film, the mother character just invites uh Jerry over because mm-hmm. he's a good looking yeah, he's a good looking guy and she's single. Yeah. You know, a real simple thing. And in this movie, we have the opportunity for that sequence, but uh, the mother played by Tony Collette, and I can't believe we've gone this far in talking about this movie, and I haven't mentioned the brilliance of Tony Collette, yeah, no, one of my great. favorite actresses. I love, love, love Tony Collette. She listens to her son and does not invite Jerry in. And there's a really great scene of Jerry like, all right, fine, digging a hole in the backyard and using his superhuman strength to pull the gas line up and light them on fire from the inside out. And I remember watching that in the theater for the first time and thinking to, so, thinking to myself like, I did not see that, coming. <laughs> I did not see. That's a good idea. You know, because I'm like, well, he can't come in the house. What can he do? Like, oh, yeah, that's right. He has superhuman strength. The walls are just an inconvenience to him.
0: Colin Farrell considers this movie the greatest success of his career. And do you know why? Why? Because it led to his mother meeting her second husband. No shit. Yeah. Oh, okay. They met on set. Really? Friend of the producer. Wow. Yeah.
1: Well, that's, that's actually good to know. <laughs> yeah, good frame on that. Yeah. And, and like I said, it's a great performance too. There's, there's nothing, no, nobody should ever be ashamed by, by anything in this production.
0: He also uh, initially requested a monologue in Latin saying it would be more menacing for his character. He got a Latin tutor and everything, but the monologue never made it. Beryl inspired his tutor to write a book about her time on set.
1: Oh, Interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just how it goes in, in, in a Hollywood movie. Sometimes you're excited for a scene and it just gets cut just because. Just and that's that's unfortunate, you know, to go through that kind of trouble and to have your scene get cut. But, you know, Colin Farrell isn't an actor who takes things lightly, and, and you, you can really tell. He's very scary you know, almost every time he's on screen, you know. Cause, yes, cause,
0: and he's so sexy. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> he is. And it's... It,
1: it's not because, like, you know, he's a vampire or anything like that. It's just, like, the way he plays Jerry is, like, the only moments he's really taking time to toy with characters are just that. Because he's messing around. Yeah, he's He having feels absolutely absolute no danger. When he has um, Charlie rescue his neighbor, he's just sitting there, you know, toying with them as they make their way through the house, having a ball. He's smiling as he gets out there outside, thinks he saved her. And he's having a huge chuckle to himself as she bursts in the flames when the sun hits her.
0: We talked a little bit earlier about um, Billy, you know, in mm. the previous yeah, movie, yeah. And that there's no Billy equivalent in this movie. Mm. Do you find this lacking?
1: No, n- not really. Um, Billy does. I mean, he adds some elements t- to the movie. I-, I think Marty Noxon was very clever to set the movie in Vegas, because if you're going to have a vampire killing people at night. Vegas suburbs are a really fantastic place to do that. And the movie it points this out a couple of times, but if you really think about it, like it really is, because people have their windows blacked out in Vegas. People work the night shift because yeah. Vegas is alive all night. So it com- makes complete sense. You can do banking in Vegas at night. You can't do that if you live in Idaho. Yeah. You just can't, you know, but you can in Vegas because they have to make compensation for people that work mostly at night. It's one of the few cities that you'll run to that issue with. So, because of that, he is a, a little bit less necessary. And you know, the, the, once again, the the character also isn't queer coded, so there isn't that element that's kind of needed. Uh, this Jerry is very much heterosexual. And even though he goes upon a similar plot line, he's stealing our protagonist's girlfriend. This is much more of a <laughs> it's much more of a horny stealing than it is in the first movie, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, like he he wants he he, he wants Amy. He very much does. So yeah, he,
0: he talks about her.
1: Yeah, like in a gross way. Yeah, and makes it all the better, like the <laughs> way yeah Farrell does it.
0: Forget uh, what he says.
1: Yeah, I, I should have wrote it down, but yeah, I know what you mean. Like he's he's, he's almost really kind of gross like with something
0: it. like she's ripe. Or yeah,
1: like that, that kind of element to it. Like yeah, because I mean she would be a high school girl, so I mean yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. And
0: he's an older man, clearly
1: older man since four hundred. Well, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, <laughs> he's, he's he quite a bit still... older. <laughs> it, it is. Um, like I said, the, the, his performance doesn't really need anybody else as another character to help him out. Like, you can see Jerry's been on his own for a long time. He's got this down pretty well. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's half the reason that this story begins, because Jerry's a little bit bored. You know, it's probably been a long time since he had somebody catch him.
0: Yeah, speaking of him being bored, I just love that whole scene where... um Charlie goes into his house yeah. to try to find Doris, the, mm-hmm. the stripper.
1: Oh, Doris. Thank you. I forgot her name.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I love the tension of that movie. And I love how, like, basically Jerry is playing with his food a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Jerry is definitely a guy who plays with his food. And I think he's intrigued by the kids, to be honest. He's certainly intrigued by Ed. Yeah. Because he could just kill Ed. He's sitting in, he's literally sitting in a lawn chair. Well, Ed is trying to desperately crawl away from him. Like he he jumps to the house and Ed's trying to get away. And Jerry never moved. He just stayed outside the house. Yeah,
0: he goes, he he jumps off the house. Yeah. He actually hurt his leg when he jumped off the
1: house. It's a great, like the way he's jumping. I wouldn't be surprised (laughs) at all. He sold it brilliantly. So it makes sense he was actually hurt. Uh, But yeah, I mean, like like that's an element to it. Like he doesn't just slash the kid's throat or anything like that. You know, I, I even think that he probably went into Ed's room and was like, oh, shit, the kid got video of me. This kid is serious. Like, yeah. I, I just don't think Jerry, Jerry doesn't feel any element of threat until the finale when he's on fire. right? And I, I honestly, I, I believe that about his performance throughout the entire film, because a lot of movies, you get sort of upset when you have this all powerful character and he's just boxing with the hero at the end of the movie so we can make time. And this movie does a little bit of that, but it's clearly explained. Jerry's having a ball. Yeah. He's just toying with these people, and that's it.
0: What do you think was Peter Vincent's motive in helping Charlie?
1: Well, it is mentioned that that Peter had his family uh, massacred by this vampire, Jerry. So there is a sense of redemption, revenge.
0: See, I didn't always make that
1: in. Yeah, the, the movie could it's be a little subtle. bit more clear about yeah. that, Yeah, because he goes and grabs that out of his, his safe, the same drawing of the vampire god or anything like that. I know he explained it a little bit better, but you know, that, that, that's a sequence that changes it, and also um, Ginger is killed. Um, his girlfriend,
0: yeah. and that,
1: that's a new character to, to this movie, and I mean, Ginger seems to be the only person that he trusts or talks to. I mean, there's nobody else yeah, he communicates why are they with. are even
0: together? They hate each other.
1: Yeah, I mean, but that's it. I mean, Peter is sliding deeper and deeper into this depression. And he just turns the course and like, all right, listen, I'm not going to go any further. If I die fighting a vampire, this is how I'm going to go out. Yeah. He makes a similar turn to the other Peter. And they're both, they have these similar, they're both cowards. They're They're both inflated upon this job that they do that's fiction, even though they aren't that character at all. They kind of want to be that character. But they can't. But they both make that decision. Like, no, I'm going to be this Peter Vincent character, and it's interesting to see the two different actors play with that same idea.
0: Now, if we thought that um, Charlie was helpless in the club scene earlier, Mm -hmm. I think he's way more helpless in this one because he's watching her be taken.
1: Yeah, yeah. He
0: drinks her blood there in the club.
1: Yeah, this isn't about him. In the previous version, in the '80s film, like Jerry is very much sending that message over to him. And then, you know, Jerry after that, you know, cuts loose, has some fun, just creates a massacre at that bar in the 80s film.
0: Jerry almost has a bloodlust.
1: Yeah. In this movie, you know, Jerry is a lot less concerned with being caught and doesn't really care because I think he has a security blanket that people will do anything to deny something supernatural. He's probably seen that for a long time. And yeah, like that sequence in, in that club where he is drinking her, right in front of him as he's being dragged away, you know, I like that helplessness of it. It certainly puts Charlie behind the eight ball a little bit more in this movie than maybe he was in the other film. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, because this Jerry is far more dangerous than the other one was. Even if he, you know, I mean, (laughs) he got a little bit of help from like a stake through the shoulder, you know, and then that affected him. But I mean, this Jerry is super strong. It shows it fast. You know, he's able to move quickly. I mean, he's a dangerous, dangerous foe.
0: What did you think about the special effects, especially towards the end of the movie when you got a lot of, you got uh, Jerry's jaw opening up?
1: Yeah, I like the CG in this movie. It's it's not really well done. Yeah, a lot of movies, um, it holds up. Yeah, a lot of movies struggle, especially. It's weird that CG from 10 years ago doesn't look that bad, but if I watch CG from like the 90s, I feel like it's almost like from a different era off, like an Apple II computer or something, unless it's Jurassic Park. This movie doesn't have that problem. It looks really good. The CG looks good. It's not as nice as the practical effects, but that's just, I prefer practical effects. But because of CG, Jerry is able to be a lot more violent and a lot, a lot more of an animated character moving around. You can see the danger he really presents as opposed to being implied. Like we just talked about how dangerous he is and the CG for his character really allows for that to be seen by us, the audience. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, Tony Collette uh, runs him over and there's that scene with his arm broken. And it's all twisted. Yeah. And he's coming back. I mean, they've driven off, but he's coming back. There's yeah. no time. Almost
1: like the Terminator. Yeah, yeah there's, there's just no time. Yeah, there's no reasoning with him. You know, he'll, nothing's going to stop him.
0: So the other uh, difference I noticed in this movie is that he has a um, harem of vampire.
1: Yes, he actually does try to create a little bit of a vampire army. Um, which I think I told you during the runtime, the very first time we watched it, like, I think it'd be a bad idea for Jerry to create a bunch of vampires. Because there's one thing you'd want as an old vampire where there appear you appear to be the only one, is for people to start thinking there are real vampires around. And creating a bunch of new vampires who are hungry and horny and, you know, hormonal heading out there, it's probably not a good way to stay hidden. Yeah. But it does create an interesting finale. All
0: right. So to close this out, um, I have a fun question for you. Okay. If Jerry from the 1985 version and Jerry from this version to the 2011 version got together in a duel, who do you think would win that battle?
1: Oh, man, they're totally fucking. <laughs> you think so? Oh, they're totally fucking. Yeah, absolutely. They're totally fucking. <laughs> yeah. That's the real answer right there. 80s Jerry Bottoms. Uh, <laughs> I think that's probably the only way it should go. And, yeah, I mean, that's it right there. Obviously, Colin Farrell, if they're going to go in a fight, his version of that.
0: I think Colin Farrell a, wins.
1: He's, he's got a lot more physicality to the yes, part. Yes, there's yeah.
0: resiliency. You see his there's resiliency. There's a little bit
1: more of classic Dracula playing the piano bit, being the suave kind of vampire in the 80s. None of that is really a part of Jerry in, in 2011.
0: The last thing I want to say before we move on to reviews is uh, I didn't know if you knew that Steven Spielberg made contributions to this movie. I did not. There are two. The first is a shot of the crucifix falling in the pool, you know, where you see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of slowly comes yeah, After it dies, yeah. That's Steven Spielberg. Oh, really? Yep. The second is uh, Jerry's four-stage makeup. Um, he's, He didn't think it was scary enough. Mm-hmm. So he insisted they put the original concept of a shark-like jaw back in. So it's funny that you made that comment about him being yeah. a shark. They actually intentioned it to be that way.
1: Well, yeah. um, uh, McLovin mentions that as well. And, and Marty Noxon talked about that as well. Like she wanted her vampire to be a hunter force of nature. And he very much is. So I, I definitely appreciate that element. That was a good call to give him that shark like jaw, that animalistic nature to the vampire really leads to his ferocity and danger.
0: Okay. So *Fright Night 85 got a 4.4 user review, 81% on rotten tomatoes, seven out of 10 on IMDb. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, here's our classic one-star reviews. This film does some things right. It has some good effects and effects when the vampire die is good also. The score is decent. Also, the acting isn't that bad. However, the film has many issues. The biggest problem is the character. I didn't find myself caring about a single one. The main character, Brewster, is so bland. The rest of the cast are just assholes and on the whole not interesting at all. The only character I slightly like is the so-called exterminator, Vincent, but even took a while for me to warm up to. The interaction between the characters I thought was very poor. There's nothing to the villain either. If I don't care about the character, then I don't care what's happening ultimately. I also thought the film was a bit too long. There are many scenes, but I thought were unnecessary and just dragged out, particularly the final battle. The final confrontation could have ended like three times, but they just kept dragging it out. I didn't really care anyway, so I just wanted it to end. Overall, I found Fright Night a forgettable movie.
1: I don't ever like to be mean, but this guy's a fucking idiot. <laughs> like, listen, it's okay to like say I don't like a movie, but you need to have better reasons than just like it could have ended earlier. I don't like that movie. Yeah, like I mean, man, when I tell you I don't like a movie, I'm, I'm going to go into the depth about why I don't care about it, or at least if I'm going to write a review, I'll at least give you some solid reasoning. And oh, it's just man. not really in that review.
0: I had a hard time finding one star reviews. It was this is just a, such a good movie. This is a really
1: beloved film. It absolutely is. I, I'm, you know, you. That's. I'm not surprised a one star review is of that caliber. Because it's just so difficult to find someone who doesn't care for this movie. And by the way, do you know someone else that really liked this movie? Ebert? One Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert gave this movie three stars. The And I'm going to read the whole review because it's a blurb. The best line in Fright Night belongs to Roddy McDowell, who plays a broken old ham bone actor who used to star in vampire movies. The kids today, he complains, don't have the patience for vampires. They want to see some mad slasher running around and chopping off heads. I'm glad Ebert quoted that line because I forgot it earlier. Back to Ebert. He's right. Vampires are doomed to live forever and have outlived their fashion. They've been replaced by guys in ski masks who hacked their way through dead teenager movies. Fright Night is an attempt to correct the situation. It stars William Ragsdale as an impressionable teenager who's become convinced that vampires have moved in next door. It doesn't take a detective to figure that out. The vampires almost flaunt their unholy natures, performing weird rites in front of open windows and disposing of bodies of their victims in plastic garbage bags. They are safe in the knowledge that nobody believes in vampires anymore. The kid calls the cops. The vampires have a plausible explanation for all their activities. The kid claims there has to be a coffin somewhere down in the basement, and the cop warns him to stop wasting their time. And then, when the vampires start getting really threatening, the kid has no place to turn, except to old Peter Vincent McDowell, the former B-movie actor who has just been fired from his TV job as a host of local creature features. McDowell knows all about vampires, how to detect, how to repel, and especially how to kill them. He knows all about being behind on the rent as well, being evicted and out of work. For 500 bucks, he agrees to have a go at the vampires that first sets up the second half of this movie. The first part of the movie is basically funny, And the second half unleashes a lot of spectacular effects devised by Richard Edlund, the same man who created the effects for Ghostbusters. Since part of the fun with vampire movies is how bad the special effects usually are, Edlund has to walk a narrow, narrow line here, and he absolutely does. He gives us a satisfactory scenes of transformation and decompositions, and seems to know his way around vampires that doesn't overwhelm the action. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Good. Good. Yeah, very much so. He loved Rodney McDowell and all the performances and the makeup. So Yeah,
0: he had a lot to say about Rodney McDowell.
1: Yeah, he he loved Rodney McDowell on this, one. I've heard him talk about it in other parts.
0: So Fright Night 2011, um, 3.8 user review, so slightly lower than the 85 version. Still solid. 72% on Rotten Tomatoes, Mm -hmm. still solid. 6.4 IMDb. And then here's your one-star review for that. As a longtime cheering fan of the original Fright Night, which I saw in 1985 with a girlfriend, I was hoping that this remake would capture at least the essence of the original and bring back memories of a better time. I failed on both accounts. I found this movie pretentious and obnoxious in an apparent attempt to disregard everything that the original feature had going for it, except the character names. It struck me as a movie that looked at the source material and decided they could do it better, tossing out everything that made the original so memorable. Jerry Dandridge is supposed to be suave and debonair, always carrying a hint of malice. The new one is the sort of vampire that stands on the street corner and hisses. His motivations in his film make no sense whatsoever. Charlie, whom in the original was a bit of a bumbling nerd with a heart of gold, is the remake of a clueless twit that isn't even the one to realize Dandridge is a vampire. And why on earth does Mom suddenly become an action heroine? The one concession to this movie I do make is David Tennant, whom has perfect comedic timing. Please don't bother with this one if you've seen the original.
1: I Like how he complains about Tony Collette's character, but what the hell, mother is going to let some vampire tear apart her baby boy? Hello, fuck yeah! Of course she goes over there and stabs him, even to mean certain death. You don't let him kill your son. That review wasn't as bad as the other one, but it, it wasn't great. Yeah, both movies are good. Uh, yeah, both movies are, are, are pretty solid. Um, and they are. Oh, by the way, Roger Ebert also three stars on the 2011 version, and weirdly enough, gives a very similar review. Loves David Tennant and the performance of Colin Farrell, and uh, was a big fan of the effects. But he did mention not to see in 3D. We did not mention that Friday Night was released in 3D. Didn't help it. Friday Night, I think, was, I think, barely made like $40 million. I can
0: hardly tell that they made it 3D.
1: There's like three or four shots where they throw it's something obvious, into the camera. They
0: have to do those, those things.
1: But um, you can take a look at Roger Ebert's review for yourself, because we're running a little bit long. And there's one last thing I want to talk about. Is Now, we like to cover all the reboots of a movie, but we left one reboot out, and that is the sequel to Fright Night 2011, which is Fright Night 2, starring uh, Jamie Murray from um, Dexter. And this movie is a straight remake of the original film, again, except low budget, set in Romania, and it's a lot closer to the original 80s film. But it's a good example of what you don't want to do with a remake because it's cheap and underwhelming. It doesn't have a single memorable thing. The only memorable thing about it is it's a sequel to a movie and tells the exact same story. Even the same character names, Charlie, Ed, Amy, Jerry.
0: Well, I'm glad we didn't cover it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Trust me. I watched it so you don't have to. Mm, And I watched it so you don't have to either, listeners. And if you want to express your appreciation for that, saving you the 90 minutes that I wasted. You can hit us up at grittyrebootcast at gmail.com. We love to answer any emails that we get from there.
0: Give us some suggestions. We're we're on 12 episodes. We can always use suggestions.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once again, um, always down with reboots, anything like that. But we're always looking for other things and other reboots and really just any other film topic to discuss. Uh, the reboots just, just generally get us going. Uh, you can also give us those suggestions at grittyreboot, and that's both at Instagram and TikTok. Uh, We answer those as well. I'm on there a lot. You can catch clips from the show.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to say hasta luego.
1: All right, guys. See you around.